Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.scbts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. would take your Bible and join uh, me this morning in the book of Galatians, the sixth chapter, Galatians chapter six, and we're going to give our attention to verses 11 through verse 18. Galatians chapter six, beginning with verse 11 and reading through verse 18, Paul writes, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. He was the first Baptist to leave his homeland and take the gospel to foreign soil. You probably would immediately say he is going to talk today about William Carey, who is rightly called the father of the modern missionary movement, who in 1793 did take the gospel to India. But you would be wrong in your assessment. So you might say, well, I bet he's then talking about the first American missionary. And so he is going to talk to us about the man Adoniram Judson, who is indeed rightly called the father of the American Baptist Missionary Movement, who in 1812 left America and would land in Burma, where he, like Carey, would serve faithfully the Lord Jesus for right at 40 years. But once more, that would not be the person that I have in mind today. No, the man that I actually believe is the pioneer of Baptist missions was a black man and a former slave by the name of George Lyle. And so my goal this morning is to bring a message to you entitled The Cross and Faithful Ministry as seen in the pastoral and missionary ministry of George Lyle, first Baptist missionary to the nations. Indeed, one biographer said of George Lyle, he was led by the living hand of a smiling providence to plant the gospel in Jamaica in 1782. Thus, he predates Carey as a missionary to the nations by more than a decade. And Leroy Fitz says it well, the black Baptist church was indeed born a missionary movement. You see, in the man George Lyle, you find the heartbeat for ministry and missions joined to that of the Apostle Paul, who said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
You see, here we find the, the grounding for both faithful ministry and also, I believe, the grounding for a faithful missionary. Indeed, in verses 11 through 18, we find a pattern for what I call a cross-centered ministry for a life of those and for those who are willing to, as Paul says, bear in their own body the marks, the brands, the stigmata of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe there are four marks in this text that will identify such a man or such a woman who indeed wishes to pursue a cross-centered life and a cross-centered ministry. Number one, a cross-centered ministry is humble, not prideful. Paul has spent six chapters expounding the gracious nature of salvation apart from any human effort. In fact, he's so concerned that we not lose sight of grace, he begins his letter on a note of grace in chapter 1, verse 3, and he ends the letter on a note of grace in chapter 6 and verse 18. Furthermore, he tells us in verse 11 that at least the end of the letter, if not the whole letter, was penned in large letters with his own hand. This may give some evidence that Paul perhaps suffered an eye affliction, perhaps one he received from the Lord on the Damascus Road as recorded in Acts chapter 9 and upon which he expounds in some uh, degree in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through verse 10. After sharing that he has written this in his own hand, he rips into those who in pride, as he says, desire to make a good showing in the flesh. In other words, they want to impress others by what they do. Paul goes on to accuse them of having nothing less than a self-interested agenda. He says, you do this, that, verse 12, that you may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Then he goes on into verse 13 and says, not only are you fleshly, and not only are you self-interested, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Verse 13, you don't keep the Mosaic law yourselves, but you do boast about the numbers that you can tally up in terms of your own team. And Paul says of such a ministry, it is pagan. He says of such a ministry, it is the evidence perhaps of an unredeemed ministry. John MacArthur would agree with that assessment, for he says of these false teachers and unconverted ministers, quote, they did everything possible to call attention to themselves. Glory in the recognition and praise they received because of their positions, their titles, and their converts. Edmund Clowney tells the story that on one occasion he had tea with Martin Lloyd-Jones in London. And he decided to ask him a question that concerned him. Dr. Jones, uh, Lloyd-Jones, I said, How can I tell whether I am preaching in the energy of the flesh or in the power of the Spirit? That is very easy, Lloyd-Jones replied as I shriveled. If you are preaching in the energy of the flesh, you will feel exalted and lifted up. If you are preaching in the power of the Spirit, you will feel awe and humility. How contrary the mindset of pride and boasting is to a cross-centered minister. Boasting in what I can do. Manipulating others for further self-glorying. How far and how contrary is that mind to what you see here in this text as taught by the Apostle Paul, but also how far is that mind from what you discover in the wonderful minister and missionary George Lyle? 
Lyle, whom Edward Holmes Jr. calls, quote, one of the unsung heroes of religious history, was born a slave on a plantation in Virginia around 1750. These are indeed humble beginnings any way you look at it, but the fact of the matter is, though he came into the world a slave, that is not what fostered his humility. What fostered his humility was he gladly and willingly saw himself as a slave of another, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us in his few writings about how it was that he came to know the Lord. He says it was through the influence of a godly father and the faithful preaching of a Baptist pastor named Matthew Moore that he would come into the kingdom and then be called to the ministry. In fact, in his own hand, he wrote a letter in 1791 from Kingston, Jamaica, and he's sharing with a man named John Rippon in London, and I quote, I was born in Virginia. My father's name was Lyle, and my mother's name, Nancy. I cannot ascertain much of them as I went to several parts of America when young and at length resided in New Georgia, but was informed both by white and black people that my father was the only black person who knew the Lord in a spiritual way in that country. I always had a natural fear of God from my youth and was often checked in conscience with thoughts of death, which barred me from many sins in bad company. I knew no other way at that time to hope for salvation, but only in the performance of my good works. But then in 1773, at the age of 23, he was brought to faith in Christ. And then he speaks of that experience that came after what he calls six months' distress of mind and inquiring the way of life, or what some of us would say today is he was seeking the Lord. And here's what he says once more in his own hand. I saw my condemnation in my own heart, and I found no way wherein I could escape the damnation of hell only through the merits of my dying Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ which caused me to make intercession with Christ for the salvation of my poor immortal soul. And I full well recollect I requested of my Lord and Master to give me a work I did not care how mean it was, only to try and see how good I would do it. He predates John Piper's theology, doesn't he? We don't need to live a wasted life. This man did not want to live a wasted life, but a life that would be God-glorifying to Jesus. He would be immediately uh, set about to preaching. Uh, more, the white minister who preached the gospel that led him to Christ would baptize him. And because of God's providence, he was at that time owned by a Baptist deacon named Henry Sharp, who gladly and willingly gave him his freedom, that he might now exercise the gifts of preaching that God had given him. And though he now is set free to go about ministry, again, you will look in vain for even a single mark of arrogance or pride on the part of this wonderful, faithful missionary minister called George Lyle. In fact, we learn from the historical record that he was ordained May the 20th, 1775, and he is recognized as the first ordained black Baptist pastor in Georgia. In Savannah, he would found the first African Baptist church in North America, a church still in existence today. And as I mentioned a moment ago, you will look in vain for any pride or boastfulness for these or any of the other accomplishments of George Lyle. Now, don't miss this. Bivocational all his life, Lyle would, without complaint, support himself, his wife, and four children by whatever jobs 
he could find. Indeed, in a letter to Dr. Rippon of London, he shared, quote, I cannot tell what is my age as I have no account of the time of my birth. I have a wife and four children. My wife, her name was Hannah, was baptized by me in Savannah. And I love this statement. I have every satisfaction in life from her. She is much the same age as myself. My four children, they are all members of the church. My occupation, I'm a farmer. But as the seasons of, the, of this part of the country are uncertain, I also keep a team of horses and wagons for the carrying of goods from one place to another, which I attend myself with the assistance of my sons, and by this way of life have gained the goodwill of the public who recommend me to the business and to some very principal work for the government. See, as a cross-centered minister, he was humble, not prideful. He didn't complain that he would be bivocational all his life. He didn't complain that he would endure persecution and suffering all of his life. He gratefully accepted the sovereign assignment given to him by his Lord. And a cross-centered ministry is humble, not prideful. Number two, a cross-centered ministry glories in Christ, not ourselves. Charles Spurgeon said of Galatians 6.14, it was the theme of Paul's ministry. What did he write? God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In stark contrast to these false teachers who boast and brag about their accomplishments, who boast and brag about who they are, what they know, where they've served and what all they've done, Paul declares in the strongest possible language, but God forbid. Literally in the text, but to me, not it will be. No, I will not boast in me in any way at all, but I will boast in someone and I will boast in something else and that is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Paul would say to some today, oh, I know there are people who are ashamed of the cross. I know there are people who are embarrassed by the cross. I know there are people who think it is foolishness and nonsense. After all, a poor Galilean Jew hanging on a first century gallow is not something you boast in. It is something you recall from. You, you run from it. You turn away from it. But not for me, said Paul. Indeed, George Whitfield would say, and he says it so well, if God is your glory, then you will love His cross. Why? Because the cross is the ground of my assurance that I have been made new in Christ and accepted by God. That's in verse 14 and 15. The cross is the place where the wrath of God was poured out on another that it might not be poured out on me. The cross is the place where, united to Christ, I died to this world and all its claims on my life. The cross is the place where all self-glorying was put to death that I might glory and delight only in Jesus. The cross of Christ is the message I proclaim. It is the ministry I perform. It is the miracle that has made me a new person. Charles Spurgeon, in a wonderful sermon entitled Grand Glorying, gets at it in the way that only Spurgeon can as to what Paul was saying in verse 14 and 15. It's a lengthy quote, but one I think that you will be blessed by. The Apostle Paul adds, "...by which the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world." 
There are two crosses in that saying. There is the world crucified there, and there's Paul crucified here. What means he by this? Why, he means that, what, that ever since he fell in love with Jesus Christ, he lost all love for the world. I like that. He seemed to, it seemed to him to be a poor, crucified, dying thing. And he turned away from it just as you would from a criminal whom you might see hanging in chains and would desire to go anywhere rather than see the poor being. So Paul seems to be saying the, the world on gallows hung up there. There, he said, that is what I think of you and all your pomp and all your power and all your wealth and all your fame. You're on the gallows, a malefactor nailed up, crucified. I would not give a fig for you. I would not turn on my heels to speak to you. All that you could give me no more suit my taste than if husks were given to me. Give them to your own swine and let them be fattened thereon. And now observe the other cross. There is Paul on that. The world thinks as little of Paul as Paul does of the world. The world says, oh, that harebrained Paul, he was once sensible, but he has gone mad upon that stubborn notion about the crucified one. The man is a fool. So the world crucifies him. So it is with the world and the genuine Christian. If he glories in Christ, he must expect to be misunderstood misrepresented and attacked. Now, on the other hand, he will say that he would sooner have the world scorn than its honor. He would sooner have it hate its hate than its love. For the love of the world is enmity against God. Blessed then are you when they shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for Christ's sake and the Gospels. Set your account, your, you Christians, upon rough weather and get seaworthy vessels that will stand a gale or two. Ask the Lord to give you grace enough to suffer and endure for that precious Savior who will give you reward enough when you see Him face to face for one hour with Him will make up for it all. Therefore, be faithful. And may the Lord help you thus to glory in the cross of Christ. Amen. As it was with Paul, as it was with Spurgeon, so it was with the man George Lyle. After his conversion, Lyle preached for two years in the slave quarters of plantations surrounding Savannah. He would even make his way into South Carolina, and many black slaves came to faith in Christ as a result of his preaching, as well as a number of white persons as well. Sharp, as I mentioned earlier, had released him, but Sharp was killed in the Revolutionary War, and following his death, Sharp's family sought to re-enslave George Lyle. However, he was able to produce his freedom papers. And then he borrowed $700 for passage for himself and his family. And in 1782, he would leave Savannah as an indentured servant, and he would land in Kingston, Jamaica. What men meant for evil, God is meaning all for good. Indeed, the hand of providential sovereignty selected him to take the gospel to Jamaica as the first missionary, the first Baptist missionary in history, and he would be faithful to that assignment. He would pay off his debt, uh, every penny, and then be freed from that indentured status. And once more, this cross-centered man would immediately set about the business of preaching a bloody cross and Jesus crucified. In fact, Holmes says it so well, now free himself, he was filled with compassion by the wretched condition of the slaves in Jamaica. So what did he do? He immediately formed a church with four others, one being his wife, all from America. He would begin public preaching services at the Kingston Racecourse. 
He would share in a letter, quote, preaching took very good effect with the poor sort, especially the slaves. The people at first persecuted us both at meetings and baptisms, but God repraised, they seldom interrupt us now. During eight years of preaching, Lyle would baptize 500 persons and establish a strong base of church there in Kingston. Again, giving evidence of his humility and desire to glory only in Christ, he sent letters immediately to the British Baptists appealing that they would send missionaries. In other words, as a wise minister and as a humble man, he was glad to share the workload with others. The result? As a result of his gospel ministry, slaves in Jamaica would be emancipated on July 31, 1833. The road to freedom, though, was not easy, and Lyle himself would suffer for his master, King Jesus, and those whom he loved and cared for. Sometime prior to 1802, quote, Mr. Lyle was charged with preaching sedition for which he was thrown into prison, loaded with irons, and his feet fastened in stocks. Not even his wife or children were permitted to see him. At length, he was tried for his life, but no evil could be proved against him, and he was armly acquitted. However... He was thereupon immediately thrown into jail for a balance due to the builder of his chapel. He refused to take what was called the benefit of the insolvent uh, debtor, and he remained in prison until he had fully paid all that was due. Much of the expense of the chapel and other costs had come from his own contributions, and he also, as I mentioned earlier, quote, labored without fee or reward, supporting himself by the work of his own hands. In 1805, the assembly enacted a law forbidding all preaching to the slaves. Though the law was not always vigorously enforced uniformly until 1810, there were numerous instances of severe persecution in the forms of whippings, murder, brutality, sexual abuse, imprisonment, lashings, murder, by the way, this was all done by white people who said they were Christians. To, to this day, I have not the ability to reconcile all of that, other than to say I suspect many of them, though professing Christians, were lost. They were headed for hell, and they lived like hell on earth. But he kept moving on, and by God's grace, things would relax. And when slavery was abolished throughout the British Commonwealth, it would not make its way to Kingston, Jamaica, and the country until 1838, a number of years after Lyle was already dead. I would submit to you this morning that only a man devoted to glorying in Christ crucified and not himself could endure such opposition and shameful conduct from fellow human beings. And again, what was the result of his humble perseverance and glorying in Christ and not himself, 1814, 8,000 Baptists in Jamaica, including slaves, freedmen, and some whites. 1832, 20,000 Baptists in Jamaica. The genesis of the great work, George Lyle. Indeed, numerous converts of his were called to preach with several establishing churches in Savannah, Georgia, Nova Scotia, and Sierra Leone. Indeed, the man was not only one who was sent, he was also a sender as well. Clarence Wagner, a biographer, gets it right, quote, 
George Lyle, a black slave, is the first recorded licensed and ordained black Baptist preacher missionary in America, the initiator of foreign missions among black Baptists in the world. Our black Baptist heritage stems from the seeds planted by him in the soils of difficulty in America, Jamaica, and Africa. Those seeds were incubated by the love of Jesus Christ, germinated by the power of the Holy Spirit, and protected by the infallibility of God's Holy Word, a cross-centered ministry, glories in Christ, not ourselves. Number three, a cross-centered ministry walks in truth, not error. Paul says there in verse 16, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. There's so much I could say, but I'm going to condense it. The call to ministry is inherently theological. In other words, good, sound, gospel-centered theology is essential both to the health and life of the church. D.A. Carson says it this way, The cross stands as the test and the standard of all vital Christian ministry. The cross not only establishes what we are to preach, but how we are to preach. It prescribes what Christian leaders must be and how Christians must view Christian leaders. Unless one, I believe, functions as a pastor theologian and a missionary evangelist, the church will be left without a leader who sets the right model and the right example for our people to follow. I'll say it this way. You know I've spent much of my life the last year and a half trying to foster a great commission resurgence among Southern Baptists. But I'll tell you this. It will only happen if pastors capture the vision. Your people will give no more than you give. They will have a passion for the lost no greater than yours. And so the fact is it will rise or fall, succeed or fail on the backs and shoulders of pastors. Why was it that George Lyle had such an incredible ministry there in Jamaica? It's because he set the example and others gladly and willingly followed. You say, wait a minute, he had no, no, no theological training? No, but he overcame it anyway. George Lyle received no formal education as far as we know. However, to consider him illiterate, uneducated, or theologically ill-prepared would be an enormous, erroneous judgment of unforgivable proportions. Indeed, the great scholar of the history of preaching, Hughes Oliphant Old, says of Lyle, quote, his preaching was received by black and white alike. He was a gifted evangelistic preacher who knew how to present the gospel in the language of his people. In fact, some even said George Lyle was the black George Whitfield. That's a pretty good designation for any preacher of the gospel. In fact, in a letter to Dr. Rippon dated 1891, Lyle wrote this, I have a few books, some good old authors and sermons, and one large Bible that was given to me by a gentleman. Now, listen to this very carefully. I agree to election, redemption, the fall of Adam, regeneration and perseverance, knowing the promise is to all who endure in grace, faith, and good works to the end, they shall be saved. In a letter that he wrote to the Honorable House of the Assembly in Jamaica for freedom of worship, he said, quote, We desired liberty to worship Almighty God according to what? The tenets of the Bible. Now, if you go back to that previous quote, 
I agree with election, redemption, the fall of Adam, regeneration, and perseverance. Uh, bottom line, brothers and sisters, he was a Calvinist. He was a Calvinist. That, 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 those are just the shorthand for the five points. Now, you know that's not where I am. But that's where Lyle went. My point being was he was very intentionally theological. He, he thought that theology really was important. But like Brainerd and Carey and Judson and Rice and Moon, he wedded that theology to a hot heart and great passion for the souls of lost men and women, boys and girls. Indeed, one of his converts said it simply this way of his ministry. I am one of the poor, under, unworthy, helpless creatures born in this island whom our glorious Master, Jesus Christ, was graciously pleased to call from a state of darkness to the marvelous light of the gospel. And since our Lord hath bestowed His mercy on my soul, our beloved minister Lyle, by the consent of the church, appointed me deacon, schoolmaster, and his principal helper. We have great reason in this island to praise and glorify the Lord for His goodness and loving kindness in sending His blessed gospel among us by our well-beloved minister, Brother Lyle. We were living in slavery to sin and Satan. And the Lord hath redeemed our souls to a state of happiness to praise His glorious and ever-blessed name. And we hope to enjoy everlasting peace by the promise of our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. The blessed gospel is spreading wonderfully in this island. Believers are daily coming into the church. And we hope in a little time to see Jamaica become a Christian country. I remain respectfully, Reverend and dear sir, your poor brother in Christ, Thomas Nicholas Swiggle, a gospel-centered ministry walks in truth, not in error. Finally, a cross-centered ministry seeks to please God, not man. Paul says there in verse 17, but from now on, let no one trouble me. Don't, don't anyone try to bother me because bottom line, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you do. I bear in my body the marks of another. I bear in my body the stigmata of the Lord Jesus Christ. My dear friend C.J. Mahaney says it this way, Too many of us have stopped concentrating on the wonders of Jesus crucified. And then he adds to that by saying this, On a daily basis, we're faced with two simple choices. We can either listen to ourselves and our constantly changing feelings about our circumstances, or, I like this, we can talk to ourselves about the unchanging truth of who God is and what He's accomplished for us at the cross through His Son. You say, what does that mean? Listen to how Jonathan Edwards puts it. The thing that Christ did in shedding His blood for the salvation and happiness of souls should be regarded by ministers as their example and direction. If Christ so loved the souls of men as to lay out Himself and deny Himself at this rate for the salvation and happiness of souls, then surely the ministers of Christ should be ready greatly to exert themselves and deny themselves and suffer for the sake of the salvation and happiness of souls. For as Christ often said, the servant, he is not above his master. Bearing literally and spiritually the marks of the Lord Jesus and yet being a joyful recipient of his grace within his spirit, as verse 18 concluded, George Lyle refused to be troubled when both persecuted and opposed. I give you a couple examples as I close. 
On one occasion, when the church was about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, a gentleman, so-called, rode into the chapel and urging his horse through the midst of the people to the very front of the pulpit, exclaimed in terms of rudeness and profanity, Come, old Lyle, give my horse the sacrament. Mr. Lyle coolly replied, No, sir, you're not fit yourself to receive it. And after maintaining his position for some time, the intruder rode away. Stephen Cook, a contemporary of his ministry, said it this way, He has been for a considerable time past very zealous in the ministry. But his congregation being chiefly slaves, they had it not in their power to support him. Therefore, he has been obliged and obligated to do it from his own industry. This has taken a considerable part of his time and much of his attention from his labors in the ministry. However, I am led to believe that it has been of essential service to the cause of God for his industry has set a good example to his flock and has put it out of the power of enemies of religion to say that he has been eating the bread of idleness or he lived upon the poor slaves. George Gibbs Bailey, another contemporary, said in inquiring of him, I have sought from those who I thought could give me an account of Mr. Lyle's conduct, and I can say with pleasure what Pilate said, I can find no fault in this man. The Baptist church thrives abundantly among the Negroes more than any denomination in Jamaica. But I am sorry to say, I just had to add this, the Methodist church is declining rapidly. I, I, I thought about leaving it out, but I, I, my pen just wouldn't let me. So if you're a Methodist here, repent and get right. We move on and we close. George Lyle, I conclude with his statement, would say to all of this simply this, I have a right to praise God and glorify Him for the manifold blessings I have received and still do receive from Him. I have full liberty from Spanish town, the capital of this country, to preach the gospel throughout the island. In fact, it is said that he planted many churches in the interior. The Lord is blessing the work everywhere, and believers are added daily to the church. My tongue is not able to express the goodness of the Lord. In George Lyle, we do see a model, Christ-centered ministry, Christ-centered missionary. Would to God that his number would multiply 10,000-fold. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this powerful text penned by Paul. And I thank you so much for the wonderful example of the man, George Lyle, who inspires us to not live a wasted life, but to, like him, ask the Lord, no matter how mean the task might be, give me the chance to do something great for your glory. And by your grace and for your glory, he did. And I thank you for his incredible ministry, his life, and his example. May I, may our faculty, may our students learn from this wonderful man. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. 
We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.